Welcome, everybody. Good afternoon. We're here live on the Healthy Indoors Live Show. I'm your host, Bob Krell. Uh, I'm your uh, moderator for the show and the founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine. Today, we have with us um, both Jeff and Connie May, who are the co-authors of the latest edition of the book, My House is Killing Me, which you uh, saw a graphic for momentarily. Let's see. It's uh, This is the second edition from John Hopkins' uh, publications. Um, they published their first one uh, many years ago. This is a, a revised version with a lot more content. Uh, we're really excited to talk about that. Um, they're authors, co-authors of numerous other books uh, in the IAQ space. Jeff has been a long-term veteran of the industry since uh, the early 90s. He's been out there as a consultant in the field, uh, widely published, uh, widely presenting at industry events. Uh, he's been around, uh, he's actually been around a long time and done a lot of very, uh, very impressive work. Um, he's also uh, one of our contributors uh, to Healthy Indoors Magazine. He writes the column Maze Ways every month. So um, we're really excited to have you guys here. Welcome. Uh, Jeff and Connie, how are you? Good, thank you for having us. And in the, in the co-host seat, as always, uh, well, as most always, the uh, ever-present uh, healthy building scientist, Mr. Joe Medosh. Welcome, Joe. Great to be here. I'm really honored to have you here, Jeff. You are somebody I always have looked up to and admire and you, have your book. In fact, your your new book is an audio book. For those of you that don't know that and want to struggle to like find time to read it, just listen to it in your car. That's a phenomenal upgrade, Jay. Way to go. Jeffrey, sorry. So, um, you know, with that, we're, um, we've got some set questions that we'd like to get into with uh, Jeff and Connie. And, um, and then we'll, uh, the second half of the show, for those of you here that are in our live virtual studio audience, we'll let you guys uh, hop in, fire your cameras up, um, and uh, pose some questions to, to all of us here, and we'll, uh, we'll entertain that from about 1.30 on. So uh, I guess I, I wanted to start out, Jeff, uh, Jeff and Connie, um, yeah, so what prompted the, uh, the second edition of the book? Well, uh, we were approached by the publisher uh, uh, and uh, Joe Rusko at Johns Hopkins University Press contacted us and said that they were interested in doing a second edition. And um, the My House is Killing Me was the first book on air quality, indoor air quality that Jeff and I wrote together. We were, we were published authors before we'd written textbooks as educators. Um, but uh, that My House is Killing Me was the first one. And Jeff had learned an awful lot of um, information since we wrote it in 2001. And, uh, and we had many more case studies and we'd worked with many, many more clients. So, uh, you know, we were, we were interested in doing the second edition. We didn't realize how much work it would be until we got, we got our teeth into it. But um, in the end, it, you, you know, it, it has a lot more information than the first edition. But well, it clearly has a lot more weight. I mean, this, this book, you know, and it's, you mentioned that in the pre-show that it was a heavier paper, but no, it's also a heavier content. There's a lot more stuff in this book. This is a very thorough compendium of information on indoor air quality. I mean, we wouldn't have thought of it if they hadn't, if they hadn't contacted us, we'd sort of put the writing part of our lives on hold to be truthful because um, it's so much work. But once we got started, we were pretty excited about it. It's um, you know, it, You've been known for this for for a while, right? The original "My House Is Killing Me" was your first book in the IAQ space, right? 
And, and that was yeah. originally published in what year? Uh, 2001. Yeah. And, I thought uh, your I thought your new title should be "My Home Is Still Killing Me" because people people read your book. They didn't. It's actually, it's actually true. Yeah, because they, they didn't. People aren't really. They're they're reading this information. They're gathering like they're like oh, that was great read, but I didn't do anything in my home. So it's really shocking that people find all this stuff out. And yet they still are reluctant to take action. So I still think it's eventually they're going to, the final book will be like, my home killed me. <laughs> oh, I don't like that. <laughs> well, one of the, one of the things that I, I took notice of right in the, right in the beginning of the book, uh, you, you made a reference that I thought was just super interesting to cilantro <laughs> early in the, in the first chapter, uh, you know, people that, that some people are, are predisposed to actually, ha you know, find cilantro to be a really, uh, you know, great seasoning, great her herbal seasoning. And some people think it tastes like soap. And, and there's a predisposition there of people that, of the latter group that think it tastes like soap. Chemically, that, that there's some issues they're predisposed to in indoor environmental issues, which oh, is... Yeah, uh, absolutely, sure. Yeah, that's a really good uh, comparison, actually. Yeah, they, well, we live they, it, because for me, it's soap. For you, you love it. Yeah, the, I eat cilantro. I love it. So there's a specific gene that codes for a, a, a specific chemical sensor. And the, uh, the chemical sensor is for the fragrant part of, of the cilantro. And for people who don't have that sensor, they only taste the soap part. Well, now people are getting all of these uh, genetic, um, you know, profiles. And I think that then they come back and ask you more questions and continue to do that. I think that we're headed towards this path of learning maybe a little bit more about pre predisposition to people that actually are sensitive to other things in the homes that we still um, think of only as an immune response. Maybe there's other things that are genetic that we still are, have no clue about. So I think that the next, you know, 10, 15 years could actually open up a lot of opportunities to learn more about what are you predisposed to and and hopefully homes are also going to be disclosing what's in your home so you can try to define a, a home that fits me. So when you go to the grocery store, you'd know, you know, whether cilantro tastes like soap, but <laughs> I move into a house, I don't know that there's something in that house that could actually cause me to have reactions. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I and mean, we see that a lot in, 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 uh, <clears throat> in families. It typically, you know, it's the, the women uh, that, that are affected more so by, by men, almost, I'd say, probably uh, two to one where you know they they be, they become sensitized either to allergens or odors or something like that and often you know the husbands don't actually believe them they're not very mm -hmm. supportive i mean many are but some are not and we've actually had a few divorces where you know the woman gets the report and you know it's like you sob you 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 never believed me <laughs> You know, and you know, as a consultant too, I've run into that so many times over the years. It's and have how often have you found yourself almost in the role of marriage counselor? As, you know, they they say that IQ consultants we shouldn't be uh, you know giving medical opinions, but sometimes we're giving uh, life counseling opinions. It's yeah, crazy. It happens, it happens a lot. People who call us are often under a great deal of stress. And I'll get it. I'll get it. I'll get it. <laughs> So let's stay on that path briefly for just a second, Jeff. So you go to a home and you have somebody who says that my, I have all these conditions in my home and it may only be one of the people in the house, right? Which it does make a lot of more stress. Okay. What, why don't you talk us through that? We also understand some of the tools, but why don't you talk about how you work with that client as a tool or as to get them to understand more about their home or their conditions, or let's be hyper aware of the time of day or where, can you talk through and give some advice to those listening? Because most people don't understand how to use the occupant in the same way we use our other tools. 
Right. Well, we <clears throat> always sit down and um, do an interview first or at least, or on the phone anyway, beforehand to get any kind of information. And then, uh, what, see, I, I have all these sensitivities myself. I mean, I'm allergic to all kinds of things, chemical sensitivity. So it's actually, it's, it's pretty easy for me as I go through the environment to actually decide, you know, where, where the, there are problems and where I want to take samples. So it's actually happened to me a couple of times where, you know, I'd be walking down to a space and I'll start to cough. And then the husband turns to me and says, gee, my wife, my wife coughs at that spot all the time too. <laughs> and in one case, it turned out there was actually, there was a, um, there was some loose floorboards. It was oak floor and then subfloor. And there'd been some kind of water problem there. And when you step on the oak, it would compress the air. And then the mold spores would come out through the crack. And I actually took an air sample at the crack and walked around a little bit and could actually show that there were, you know, a lot of uh, aspergillus or penicillium spores coming between the two floors. Wow. So, you know, I, I, we like to find out what, where, what the problem areas mm -hmm. are. And then a lot of the things that I do that I guess is very different. I, <clears throat> I mean, I take a lot of samples. I, I we sample rugs, couches, pillows, uh, dogs. I mean, I've taken, you know, uh, a sample from a bird, actually. <laughs> a bird flapped his wings and I took, but, you know, that's how I learn about what's actually, you know, what the sources are. And that's really, in my opinion, that's the most important thing that any air quality person has to do is they, you know, if you take an air sample, it doesn't tell you anything really. I mean, it can tell you if there's a problem, but it doesn't tell you, you know, what the source is. And so by source sampling, you can actually figure out uh, where the allergens or irritants are coming from. So I just want to elaborate. I just want to say, yeah, you had mentioned on that. On, yeah. Sorry. So on what you may sampling, everybody here has got their own method of sampling. So you said you sample dog and bird and everybody. So why don't you just talk briefly about what type of sampling you're doing or how you're doing that? How do you get the bird to sit still to sample it? That kind of stuff. <laughs> I have the homeowner hold the bird. <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I use a, an, I use a, well, I use a Burkhardt air sampler to do all my samples, but it's basically, it's just a spore trap. And I just, I take a, a spatula and I'll, you know, hit the surface and then just collect the aerosol that comes up. And the, the reason I like the Burkhardt is it's a glass slide with grease on it. You take the slide out, you look at the, you know, sample. And if there's too little, you have to do it again. If there's too much, you may want to do it again and, and with less of a, you know, less of a bang, but uh, you can sample carpets, clothing. I mean, I actually, I, I, this was a crazy thing. I was looking at a radio station one time and the woman who was running the radio station was having all these allergy problems. And I went into one of the rooms in the radio station. I didn't have any problem breathing. And then I was talking to her in the same room and I was having a lot of trouble breathing. So I went back to test again and there was no problem. So I realized that it was, she was the problem. So I, uh, I took a pat sample. I just, you know, I tapped her shoulder and I put the Burkhardt spore trap sample there. I took a sample of the dust and there was an entire dust mite in the sample. And I'm very allergic to dust mites. And uh, when I, I called her up and told her about the results, she said she was on her way to the, to the beauty parlor to get her hair dyed. And she was wearing an old sweater that she never washed. And, uh, <laughs> and that was <laughs> <clears throat> I, I'm assuming you didn't use the spatula on the bird, though. Oh, no. The bird actually I'm... was flapping his wings. 
And so, I so I you said there's you said there's three there's three common you know you, three most common sources of indoor air quality problems in homes. Yeah, well, right. the uh, 300, 600, yeah, right. We did we we did a study of um, uh, we did a study of uh, of we of all the reports that I had done. So we compared the results of six hundred sick houses to. 300 control houses or the control houses were homes that I looked at strictly for real estate purposes. And we just looked at certain characteristics of the home. So if, if they had air conditioning, if they had, you know, hot water heat or finished basements or carpets and so forth. So, and in the Boston area at the time, only um, 19% of homes had uh, central air conditioning. And that basically was what the, um, Census Bureau data agreed it was perfect. It was 19%. But of the homes that were people were sick in, the 600 homes, 37% had uh, central air conditioning. And so the the likelihood of having you know asthma respiratory problems are almost double in in a home with central air. And that kind of leads to the second thing. Maybe you could put that picture up of the uh, of the kind of the air conditioning the pans. <clears throat> Oh, perfect. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I'm sure mo most of, oh, there you go, most of, most of you have seen, uh, you know, condensate or, or pans and air conditioning systems like that. And when, this is a picture of, a, of the pan when it's all dried out in the heating season, but in the, in the summer when the air conditioning is operating, the pan is, is full of water. And it's also full of all microorganisms. It's full of bacteria. It's full of um, maybe full of yeast. There may be mold growing on the surface. So it's a, it's a very, very potentially allergenic uh, soup. And uh, all of the microorganisms secrete allergens into the, um, into the water to digest things. And they, and they produce byproducts that are allergenic. So uh, I, I just want to make sure people know what that, what that picture is. I know some people are savvy and some are less. So that okay. is uh, above your air handler. There is a, a, a box or a plenum. And inside that is usually a coil for cooling. And that's where all the water actually drips down and drains out of the PVC pipe on the side of your unit. So that it's inside you. Some people think of the drain as maybe what's below the unit, but that's actually inside. And that white area is the coil that exchanges the, the heating and cooling inside. Is that correct? Yeah, right. Yeah. So the so the the um, one of the chapters, the new chapters in the book, is entitled um, "Trojan Horse Allergens." And uh, and I think you know, for people who are listening who do air quality, often you know you you can't find an exact uh, source of a problem. And you know, there, I believe that in many cases the reason is that there are there are surrogate allergens. There are non-discrete particles that have allergens on them, and and they can originate in that uh, in that pan or, or just about any other place where there've been you know there's been microbial growth. So I think if you could, uh, Bob, could you show the slide of that pollen grain? I sure can. Yeah. Okay. So this is a greatly magnified pollen grain, and it's actually it's leaking now. I use acid fuchs and stain to stain things, and so it. It, it, it makes the it stains proteins and allergens pink. And, and sometimes the, 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 the water, the medium makes the pollen grain burst. 
and you can see that pollen grains are full of starch granules. And those, the pollen grain is many, many times, it's 50 times bigger than the actual starch granules. And what they found in, in some countries is after, the, after rain, that the asthma admissions in hospitals goes up dramatically. And the theory is that the allergens are on these much smaller particles rather than the larger uh, pollen grains. So the, what happens is those starch granules have the allergen from the pollen grain on them, and then they can be, be inhaled deeper to the lung. And so it's very similar to the cornstarch. People have latex allergy. They breathe in uh, protein allergens on the, on the um, starch granules. So if you have drywall dust in an air conditioning pan or cellulose or anything, once it's sitting in that allergenic liquid, when it dries, it can be aerosolized. And so you can take an air sample in a space and you'll see no mold spores, no pollen. You may see some inorganic particles or small bits of sort of uncharacterizable dust, but people can be having allergy symptoms from that. So that's, those are surrogate allergens. No, that's new to the book. That wasn't yeah. in the first edition. So, you know, one of the, one of the questions that people have asked, um, how does a consumer become an educated consumer and be a smart shopper of indoor air quality services, whether it be consulting or, you know, people are contracting for various, you know, various things in the sector. What, 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 what does a general consumer need to know? How can they make smart choices? We have that in the book too. Yeah, that, we have that in the book. You want to answer that one? No, no? Okay, we, have well. a, we, have a, we have a chapter in the book called testing and remediation. And we, we talk, we talk about just those issues and we have lists of questions that consumers can ask professionals when they, you know, call to find out about their services. You, you have to do your research. And, um, you know, we, we added that because people have often asked us that question over the years. Well, and we all know that that's one of the most uh, challenging uh, conditions that even if somebody says they're certified, they can show you some credentials and credentials does not mean qualified. That's a, a real challenge in our industry that, you know, I've got some credential that I got on a weekend, uh, you know, webinar, and uh, now they think they actually can go, you know, do sampling and do diagnostics. It's one thing to sample, it's another to understand what's happening in the home. That's a world of difference. And people just think that that sample tells them everything when you know as well as, as I do, it's about what you're experiencing, what you're visually and what your occupant's telling you, then your supporting sample confirms your evidence. But mm -hmm. to think that your sample tells you everything is what people really kind of go down the wrong path on. It's yeah. also an interdisciplinary profession. You know, you have to know something about building science. You should know something about practical science. You should be a good listener. I mean, it, it really pulls on, on a lot of skills. And uh, I think, the, the best, you know, the most effective indoor air quality professionals is someone who has those skills and, and training and practical experience. Well, well I mean, Joe, Joe cited, you know, all the certifications that fly around the industry and, you know, all of us here on this call have, you know, have some of those ac voluntary acronyms, but, but that's not just limited to those. I mean, there's licensures out there, you know, like, for example, I, I won't name the state that I live in, but, you know, like the, the, the mold license, you know, you, you take a four day class, pass a 50 question multiple choice test, and now you're an assessor and, and you're qualified to go out and actually consult and write specs for mold remediation jobs. I actually ran into a consultant who claims that he's a certified mycotoxin investigator. And uh, I, I kind of researched that and I found that he took a one hour 
you know, online video about mycotoxin testing. That would be a great show for uh, Netflix or something, you know, uh, the, the mycotoxin hunter, you know, that's the kind of stuff that that, that kind of leads to. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. But that, but that you know, you you definitely led to a point there, right? Because that's what, you know, from a consumer perspective, right? They, what do they have to judge by? They have the credentials that the various professionals, you know, hand to them. And, uh, you know, and it's even more complicated, I think, when it's a state issued licensure, you know, because that's, it seems to have value, right? I mean, you got this card from the state, doesn't that mean that they're qualified? And it's like, yeah, I think, you know, there are some places that have, you know, evaluations of, of people, maybe that's, you know, that's kind of helpful. I don't know if, uh, have you run into problems where people get, you know, into trouble where they've used someone that had really good recommendations? Sure. Well, yeah, that's not uncommon because people are like, hey, get your brother and your family to all you know, chime in or something. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. I actually, that's true. I went to, we were, were some t town we were traveling through and I looked online for the best, you know, restaurant or something like that. And it took us to a Home Depot parking lot and there was a hot dog stand there. And that was the place that it directed me to. And I was the lousiest hot dog I ever ate. I was going to say, I mean, was it at least a good hot dog? That's, well, it that's... wasn't any good. It was terrible. And he had all of his friends saying what a great place it was. But again, that, you know, that leads to that same point, you know, um, and I, I'd even raise the argument. Let, let, let's stir it up here for the Q&A later. Um, you know, does the, the fact that, you know, a lot of or many sectors in IAQ right, require or are driven toward third party consultants, you know, not having contractors also do testing or, you know, not doing design builds. And I know that's been the model for the asbestos industry, you know, ever, ever since that industry kind of sh shook out. And it, it's been the model in what, seven states now, eight states in the United States that require, you know, separate third party. But does that third party mean anything? Like you just, you just illustrated, Joe, you know, uh, you know, how do you know it's not the brother-in-law's company that's the consultant? You know, I, I, I don't, people cheat, you know? <laughs> Well, the, the, the ACAC is pretty good. I mean, I took that test, uh, yeah. and that was a pretty thorough, difficult test. So I think people on ACAC know their stuff. No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't question that, Jeff. I think the, I think there's some really there's some really good voluntary programs out there. My, my question is, is, when you try to regulate competency, you know, and, and integrity and common sense, yeah. you know, and you know, and you know, honesty, you can't really regulate that very well, you know. Yeah, well, there, but there's an. I think the one thing that is missing what the ACACA does do is they want to know what's your experience, how long you've been in the industry. You need to actually, you know, submit something that says I've been working with so and so for mm -hmm. so long, and that amount of time determines what level you actually get when you pass your test. So mm -hmm. there are some checks and balances with some others. You just go take a, a class, and you were a banker a month ago, and now you are an expert in, you know, assessing homes and testing for mold. So that's really a the difference between some of these is I don't need a, any kind of a justification as I actually have experience. So, is ACAC really a common uh, term for that acronym? I always say ACAC. I'm just uh, ACAC sounds to me like it's something that's happened in World War II with any aircraft. <laughs> it should be educational programs, really. Yeah. Well, I want to well, get I, I, you gonna Joe wanted to know. I think about something about dust mites. I think I'd like to get back to dust mites. Absolutely. One of my favorite topics. <laughs> So, uh, so I'll, I'll prompt the prompt the question. So, uh, according to some, so you can verify or not that uh, dust mites were actually not here in America prior to we'll just say 1970. So, can you, you know, deny, clarify, or tell us more about the history of dust mites as 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 best you can, um, without giving away your book? <laughs> the uh, 
the I should say in general, like allergists were considered, you know, voodoo workers for a long time. It was not a sort of very respectable discipline, uh, you know, for doctors. And so, you know, it didn't really become much of a, a profession until relatively late compared to, you know, let's say heart, heart doctors and surgery and all these other sort of <clears throat> subspecialties. So uh, they didn't discover dust mite allergen until about 1960. And that's, that's when they realized that people were allergic to dust mites. But, you know, dust mites and all mites have been around for ever basically millennia and you know i i, mean, I find uh, for example if you take a sample from a, a, a mold colony you always find droppings from uh, mold eating mites so i might find a dozen different species of mites at home and, and dust mites are really only one species out of i think of maybe forty thousand, you know named species but i i'm very very allergic to dust mites and uh, <clears throat> I, I always thought, you know, to understand the enemy, I need to see them up close. So I've actually had a bunch of dust mite colonies and, uh, and watched them very, you know, very, very carefully. So they've been around forever. They've been, you know, in people's, you know, bedding since day one, since people, you know, from the first time somebody made a mat out of hay or something like that. So um, they've been around for a long time and it wasn't until the you know medical world caught up with them to to say that you know here they are they're a problem but you actually have a dust mice circus is that like what you have in your in your somewhere <laughs> yeah. in your house well, yeah. i'll tell you what was so interesting to watch i would uh if the relative humidity is below 70 percent the dust mites have uh, what would you call irreversible loss of moisture they dry up they desiccate so they're in equilibrium with the humidity in, in the space around them. So they don't drink anything. They, 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 dust mites have little salt crystals on their, on their palps in front, and they can actually extract moisture from the air and take the moisture from the salt crystals. So when the relative humidity is below 70%, they all congregate <clears throat> in, in a space. I can't think of the word now, but they, if you... In my colonies, when the relative humidity was below 70%, you could see little yellow dots on the, uh, it was on a piece of paper towel. That's how they uh, we, we culture them on towel with uh, fish food. And uh, that yellow dot could be a hundred mites all clustered together. So it's, it's called a harborage site. And a lot of the roaches do that. Yeah, roaches thing, make yeah. harborage sites. So they actually drag their, their eggs in. It's kind of cute. They kind of go all clustered together and then they, they don't dry out because they're clustered together. So uh, they'll be in, in deeper portions of the mattress or the pillow or whatever, all clustered together. And then when you get into bed, uh, the relative humidity goes up in the mattress and then the dust mites then can do what they do. So all they do is they fornicate and defecate and masticate. So they, they, um, they produce all those allergens that make people so sick. So I want to clarify. Yeah, I want to clarify. <laughs> you said it on record. Yeah, I, I had to. I had yeah, to. I, 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 I want to clarify. People go into a, a room and they'll walk in the middle of the room and they pull out something like, okay, I measured the relative humidity in this room and it is 65. So this room could not have dust mites. 
can you please elaborate on what does it mean to measure relative humidity, especially bedding and other stuff where it's hard to do that, but multiple samples, something to give you an indication that the relative humidity really is something that may be uh, elevated here. Well, I mean, the real issue with mites is that they, they live primarily, you know, where we sit and spend a lot of time. So you find dust mites in chairs where people sit a lot. Uh, I know I had one, I had one guy who retired and spent 15 years working on a, on his uh, stamp collection. And he was sat in the same cushioned chair. And I, there were so many dust mites in that chair. If you snapped your fingers, the chair would come towards you without the person on it. So, I mean, it was just, it was grotesque and he was deathly ill from that. So the, uh, the rel if you measure the relative humidity, if you're on, I've done this actually, I woke Connie up with a sling psychrometer in the middle of the night. I was under the covers, you know, with a, <laughs> and a flashlight taking the <laughs> relative humidity. Uh, it's true. I know. can't even, I can't even picture this. Actually, I can. That's a scary me. Horrible nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the relative, I the since. spinning I, noise and the light. I, well, what a great illustration that would make in the book. I'm telling you. Yeah. I now have a digital thermohygrometer, so I don't disturb her. But if you so if you measure the ambient relative humidity, you know, under the covers, it's pretty much close to the room air. So the only place that it's really high is under your body directly where you're sweating into the mattress. So all of that mite activity is right there or it's in the seat. But as soon as you get out of bed, they all congregate together in their little harborage sites and they sit there waiting for you to go come back. <laughs> the same Thanks. thing. I, boy, that, there, there's just a loaded path right there with, you know, uh, your digital hydrometer under the cover. So we'll just move <laughs> on to another topic. Yeah, yeah we're, we're going to let the go. I want to re remind our virtual studio audience in about a minute or two, um, or maybe three, we're, we're going to invite you to uh, turn your cameras on. We'll still ask you to keep your microphones muted and use the reactions button down in your uh, lower part of your window with your cursor uh, to raise your hand. And our moderator, uh, editor of Healthy Indoors Magazine, Susan Valenti, who's uh, lurking in the chat right now will uh, acknowledge you and I'll let you guys come in and ask questions of Jeff and Connie uh, or Joe and I if you'd like to. Um, yeah, I have a question for you, Jeff, though. You know, so you, you did, you touched on it just briefly uh, before you spoke of dust mites, the uh, mold eating mites. My, my first experience actually knowing that they existed was back when I took my Macron class back in 2000 and got a microscope and I, I was looking at mold off a basement wall and I was like, ah, there's these things, they're mites. What, what, what are these? And they're, you know, it, it freaked me out too. when I saw it moving on my, my tape lift, you know, under, <laughs> and, and of course I cooked it, you know, cause it was an old halogen lamp on the, it's like the, how 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 do they come into play? Are those are those mites problematic? The ones that are eating mold? Absolutely, sure. yeah. They're, the um, I mean, nobody to tell you the truth, Allergy nobody nobody has even looked at this. It's a, this. See, there are only about I think there's something like four hundred acarologists in the world. I mean, it's such an arcane field. There's forty thousand identified species or something like that. But uh, it's extremely difficult field to be in. So nobody really knows a lot about mites. There are a few, you know, there are a few people, but, but actually Larry Arlium was one of them. At, I think he's in Ohio state and he has a paper somewhere that he says that every, every mite produces allergenic uh, fecal material. And uh, <clears throat> some of the mites, some of the mites have what they call a stylet. It's like, it's like a spider. They, they, uh, they inject, I guess, enzyme into the spore and they digest the stuff that's inside and then they take the liquid out. They don't eat it. Some, 
I think some of the mites actually chew up the spores and, and eat them. Uh, but there are other, a lot of other microarthropods that do that. I've actually, I, I was in a, a, a case where a family was suing the town because of a flood that supposedly made their whole basement moldy. And uh, Connie kept the clients busy upstairs while I was sort of looking around in the basement and, and I took tape samples and there was never been a flood at all, but there were, there were dust mite fecal pellets where the spores were actually germinating within the fecal pellet. So uh, they clearly have had this problem, this mite problem and mold problem for many, many years. It wasn't had nothing, had nothing whatsoever to do with the, the leak that they had had recently. But you're saying, so you're saying the fecal pellets for the mites are actually were a source for the mold. So that's almost like that paradigm with that whole uh, rat colony where they were trying to you know grow the rats and feed the rats. I mean, so they actually there's a symbiotic relationship. Oh, absolutely! Oh, yeah, sure. Wow. Some of the there's actually there's a mite that lives in seaweed that has like like crevices in its in its uh, outer uh, skin that are the perfect size for the spores of a particular type of mold that grows uh, grows in, in the seaweed. And so the when the mites forage in the seaweed, they carry the spores up. Oh, in fact, the people. I, this is something that always mystified me. When you look in attics, sometimes. And you, it's a moldy attic sheathing. Sometimes you'll see colonies of mold kind of dragging along like a, a necklace or something. And that's actually mites that have gotten spores on their bodies and then, and then deposited them. And then those colonies, those single spores develop um, into colonies. It's just, it was such a mystery. It almost looked like somebody had taken a pencil and outlined you know, a design on the, on the wood. But that it has to be a foraging mite. That's fascinating. We also have a uh, mites on our body. We have uh, mites in our eyebrows. There's a variety of other mites. Yeah. I mean, we we, we live that. with these uh, constantly. Maybe you so, do. Yeah. No, Demodex, you do too. I, I the whole time, that's Joe. The first time I heard about a demodex mite, I pulled an eyelash out and I looked at it under the microscope, and God damn it, there was a mite there like crawling around. I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. The first very first time. See, this I, is I'm in bed sometimes. They're very. They're very strange looking uh, organisms. This, this, is, this is the danger of having a microscope, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, you start to do like the, the, the damnedest things in your house. And, you know, here, let, let me look at that off the dog. I'll see what it is. You know, so. I, I miss a lot of football, I'll tell you. <laughs> No, so, you know, you're not missing anything. So let, let me, uh, I'm going to ask our, our virtual studio audience now, uh, please, uh, everybody turn your cameras on and uh, do we have to, Susan, we have to give them access to do that or can they just do it? I, I believe they can. Uh, yeah, I think they all can do it right now. So uh, guys, turn your cameras on and uh, yeah, there you go. Hello, hello. Uh, everybody start popping your cams on and uh, use the reactions button down on the lower right side of your screen to uh, raise your hand to ask a question. Um, and while we're waiting for people to jump in here, I have a question for Jeff and Connie. Who's the better writer and editor? Of you, you, You've been a dynamic duel here for a while. I am. That's an unfair question, I know. Yeah, right. we knew the answer. <laughs> I, I, I am. She taught English I, I for 40, taught, 30 years. I, was a, I taught writing for 30 years and uh and that's really my skill you know jeff jeff will dictate and i'll listen to it and then i'll form it into a paragraph and then he reads it over and yeah when, we, <laughs> when we did my house is killing me i would be you know dictating 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 and all of a sudden you say wait and it'd be this silent moment which would be like typing and rearranging <laughs> everything <laughs> 
I mean, I have, you know, I see you know, for years now, you've been our longest running column in Healthy Indoors magazine. And one thing I have to always say is we never have to edit anything that comes from you guys. In fact, I, I, I and I have to I have to go back to Connie chastising me back in 2015 or maybe it was 14 because no, because we had some typos in the magazine. My oh. editor was out, out for a bit and I actually oh, pushed yeah. an issue out. And she, and she corrected. She sent me the issue with corrections on it as a PDF. And no, it was great because I was like, holy shit, you're right. It's like, well, I'm embarrassed. Like, and I had to write a, like a apologetic letter back going, oh, yeah, well, I, I pushed it out without our editor proofing a lot of this. Well, I, I did it for 30 years. It's a hard habit to break. <laughs> It, well, it, I, have it, a, I, I have a question we uh, mentioned earlier, and it's a common theme that many people listening uh, ex experience. There's a, a hyperactivity of mycotoxins. It's people are like, I got it in my blood. Um, it's all over my house. We're, we're, uh, th this is killing me and my family. Can you just give us some uh, common sense advice about mycotoxins, um, you know, wh sure. what they could be doing to the body and where they're found in the house or found in other conditions? Right. Okay. Well, you know, it's a shame. To, I mean, I think probably if there's, you know, a lot of air quality people, including me, we get a lot of uh, referrals from, from people who are very concerned about mycotoxins because they found mycotoxins in their urine. And um, most, I would say, you know, 99% of mycotoxin exposure is, is really from foods. And I, I've actually been, I've been researching Jeez, this a little bit. Well, I've tested teas full of mold, like organic teas are very, very moldy. Loose leaf teas. Yeah, the loose leaf tea. But uh, <clears throat> the, there's there are a lot of papers out there, if anybody's interested, on mycotoxins in food. So it's very, very common. And I've actually done some calculations where, you know, I forget the exact number, but let's say there's, you know, four picograms of uh, ocrotoxin A in an aspergillus ocreous spore. If you... Uh, calculate what concentration in the air you would need of spores, it gets to be into the hundreds of thousands. So they have shown that, that workers in silos who are dealing with moldy grain, mm -hmm. concentrations of, in the millions, then they will have mycotoxin in their, you know, in their urine. But if you find mycotoxin in the urine of just anybody, you know, not necessarily a, somebody in a, in a damp building that it's, it's most likely from food. And, and that does not, I, I hate to think that, you know, people are going to say, well, then mycotoxins aren't, you know, aren't real. I mean, no, one real. of the, they're sure. real. the thing is that I, I mean, the only way I can explain that people get so sensitive to these things is that the way, you know, I'm, I, I have, chemically sensitive so the very low concentrations of things really bother me and that there may be some you know biochemical mechanism through which people become hypersensitive to mycotoxins so if they're in an environment where there are mycotoxins they're reacting much more strongly than than yeah than they would you know from from a sort of you know strictly tox toxicological point of view where you need thousands of times higher concentration we a lot of a lot well, of let's, let's, who've had Lyme's disease are seem much more sensitized to to mold too. So let, let's uh, give some advice to those who uh, get these calls. So, um, you know, the, the the people say, you know what, oh, we we not have it in our urine, but they also have it in their blood. That's a common response because once they do one, they do the other. 
So what, what would you recommend to those who are doing these assessments as to, okay, so here's some, what would you do at a house? What would you be testing or how would you confirm that the mycotoxins may or may not be in the home that are causing well, these reactions? It's yeah. really not even possible. In fact, we had, I had a paper with um, uh, John, with John Richards, I think it was, uh, in mycopathologia. And it, it was a house on the Cape where this woman was deathly ill. And uh, we found uh, Aspergillus ochratius growing in her duct system. It was actually growing in dog food. And I sent that off to John Richards' lab. And they found the highest level of ochratoxin A than the, any sample they'd ever seen. It took them, they had to keep redoing the testing to dilute it. It was 1,500 parts per billion. And, uh, and so we also took samples from the refrigerator from the, you know, to get the house dust, the long-term collection, and they couldn't find aquatoxin in the dust. So it was very high in the, uh, in the actual duct work, but from the air, it didn't, you know, you couldn't really get enough of it to, to see. Now, maybe if they had had, you know, 10 pounds of dust, they could have extracted it. But with the amount of sample, there was no aquatoxin at all. So it's very difficult. To, although I think there are now there are some filters now where you can actually you can test for for uh, mycotoxins. So Terry Sofer's got a question. Um, uh, your camera's live and your mic's live, Terry. Uh, your mic can be live. Yes. Uh, so uh, with these uh, mold eating mites, uh, that would seem to raise an interesting question about whether um, uh, those mites are able to deactivate uh, mycotoxins that uh, they consume along with mold particles uh, uh, or whether they might actually uh, transmit mycotoxins. Uh. The, uh, the, I, I don't think that they would, you know, activate or deactivate the mycotoxin, but I don't know if they could accumulate you know, that mm. much in the, in the fecal pellet. I mean, the fecal pellets are, you know, there's 25 microns or so. Um, and they're actually much bigger than the original spore. So they don't get aerosolized as, as readily. So you're less likely to breathe, you know, mycotoxin from a fecal pellet than you are from, you know, individual spore. Um, any of you in the audience who have any other, uh, any other questions, uh, now's a great time to raise your hand. We've still got almost 20 minutes or so left on the show and we'd love to entertain your questions. Um, I, I had another question for you, uh, for both of you, Jeff and Connie. Um, how did you ever come up with the, the original title of the book? My house is killing me. Uh, you know, I know we, in pre-show we had a little conversation about that, but, uh, it, you know, certainly, uh, you know, could be considered an inflammatory title. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we, we actually, we came, we came back to the office one day, this is many, many years ago, and there was a woman, was, she was describing her health situation. The message she left. So, and it was a phone message, yeah, a recorded message. And at the end of the message, she said, my house is killing me. So yeah, that was how we came <laughs> up with the title. And, and it turns out that she, the, this house she was living in, she said, the only room that I can be in in the house is is the bedroom, which was an addition to the house. And every other room in the house had, uh, had uh, not you know, registers and supplies for the heating system that had been abandoned. So you know, they had been a hot air heating system. They switched over to hot water, but they left all the registers, supplies, and everything. They were all open, and she had a very moldy basement. So the basement air was infiltrating through all of those supplies. 
into every room except the bedroom where it was new, it didn't have any opening to the basement. Okay, so let's see how well the cobbler's shoes are in their own house. So I have some questions back to you guys. So what do you guys have in your home that um, you would recommend that others do? Like, do you have air purifiers, uh, HEPA filtration, and do you, have a, do you have an air handling duct system? Uh, do you have a HEPA vacuum? What, what are you guys doing to make your home healthier now that you know some of the challenges that go along with just living in a normal home with, with, with cloth material stuff? I'm married to Connie. Yeah, we should, well, we should start with the construction of the house, actually. Um, we, we, cho we chose to live here because the builder would do, it's a new, you know, we're the first occupants, we're the first primary owners of the house. And the builder would build it the way Jeff wanted. And um, the, the uh, foundation is insulated on the outside, so we have no fiberglass insulation in the basement. The basement's unfinished, but it, <clears throat> it's easy to condition it. Um, we have a heater down there. Um, and uh, then we, we have a duct system, but Jeff insisted on, on the highest level of filtration of the duct system that we could, we could get. And we have a separate hot water heating system. So in the winter, we shut off the duct system so warm house air won't rise up into the ducts uh, and fuel mold growth. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, for people out there. One of the, you know, we have, we have separate heating and cooling. I, I couldn't live with a hot air heating system because you're constantly circulating all those, the allergens. But uh, <clears throat> if you have a, a separate air conditioning system in an attic and you're in a climate where, you know, it's cold in the, in the winter, you can actually have condensation in the uh, in the air conditioning system, I've opened a couple of them up, and there were puddles of water. Uh, I think I have a picture in the book actually of one. This guy was deathly ill, and he was he had a lot of he had asthma. He was running humidifier in his bedroom all the time, and I disconnected one of the ducts. It was a big house, and there was a long trunk duct. It must have been about 34, 30 feet long, and I looked down, and there was water dripping down the walls, and there was a puddle. In the, um, in the in the underneath the filter and the duct that I disconnected was completely black. It was flexible ductwork and it, all the dust was covered with mold. So if anybody has a uh, an air conditioning system that's not run during the <clears throat> the duct system isn't being used during the winter and it's cold, they should seal all the registers and and you know cover the the filter with foil or you know saran wrap or something so that it's fairly airtight. We have no wall-to-wall -wall carpeting. Um, we have all hard flooring. Uh, a few rugs. We have, we, use, we have a HEPA vacuum. We use unfragranced cleaning and body products and um, we don't burn jar candles. It's just, it's a lifestyle. The lifestyle choices really, um, they can make a big difference. But I can tell you really the, the most frustrating thing for me was that the only room in the house that really bothered me at all was my own office. And mm -hmm. I took samples, I tried, you know, did particle counts and all kinds of things and never really could, you know, it was looked like the surrogate allergens, there'd be small particles in the air, but I have no idea what they are or, or you know, why they were bothering me. And uh, <clears throat> I finally got a, a, you know, an air filter and that helped. But what the key was I walked by my bookshelf one day and I started coughing and I realized I have all these old books from, you know, college and things that have been stored in my basement. And you can see it's now covered with plastic. I have probably, I, I'm going to clean them eventually, but I couldn't do it in the winter. But behind me, 
there's there's a you can see the polyethylene that's covering all the books and that's made a hundred percent improvement and the the dust on these the books it's just there's nothing really definitive there it's just it's I believe it's from the air conditioning because the, the air conditioning blows uh, <clears throat> you know blows a certain amount of dust around and and there's it's impossible to avoid some sort of you know microbial growth in that in that system. Well, especially when you're talking about books, we've had clients over the years, uh, one in particular who I won't name because they wouldn't be happy if I did, but a federal government entity that had a very rare historic uh, book collection in the, the, this uh, higher up management person's office and, uh, you know, books, books that were hundreds of years old, uh, old leather bound books. And they, this person was getting ill in the office. And, uh, you know, that was really the, that was the source. It, it was actually this historic collection of books. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. was, that was causing it. So you mentioned um, earlier um, that you don't have any fiberglass in your basement. And I think that's interesting because what you see a lot of times is fiberglass, right? Gets stuffed in the rim joist, right? Which is kind of like a, a futile effort anyway, because it certainly doesn't air seal anything. And, uh, and, and then how about the, the vinyl covered uh, fiberglass uh, wall mat that builders like to hang four feet down in a basement? Yeah, I, actually there's that new system, something I forget who makes it, you know, that, it's fiberglass with vinyl, and I've actually found mold growing in that already too. I mean, I the um, I actually wrote a paper on that. I did. I think there were fifty samples of fiberglass from basements and crawl spaces, and um, actually uh, worked with Chin Yang on that. So he did the sort of uh, <clears throat> the microbial part to identify things, and um, more than half of the samples had severe mold growth in them. In the, dust. In, the, the in, dust. in the fiberglass, what happens is the fiberglass traps uh, sawdust particles and pollen and all sorts of biodegradable de- debris. And then uh, if the relative humidity gets high enough, the mold actually starts to grow. And I, I have pictures in the book of that of actually uh, hyphae growing around, around uh, fiberglass fibers. So it, it's very common to find mold growth in fiberglass insulation. The industry says, you know, no, mold can't grow on fiberglass. It's a mineral, but it's growing on the, on the dust particles that are trapped in the fiberglass. Yeah, can and, we, can and we the reiterate binder that? too, right? Yeah, the yeah, the right. binder, because it's vitreous glass. I heard that argument back in my NADCA days when we got into the battles with the insulation manufacturers about internal lining and ductwork, right? And I, I was doing, you know, presentations back in the early 90s on that and constantly being harassed over it because they say, oh, it's vitreous glass fibers. They don't support, you know, microbial growth. It's like, yeah, but you've got binders. You've got, you know, adhesive binders that are organic material and you've got tons of organic debris in there. Yeah, Chin Yang did a paper on that too. He said he did 1,200 samples of, of uh, duct liner and half of them were severely contaminated with mold growth. So let's just go on record. I think it's a safe thing to say wherever you could find dust, you could find mold. Is that something that could be easily stated as a, you know, at some point, even in dry climates, there are moisture conditions that could be elevated enough in certain areas that wherever you find dust, you actually could find some type of mold growth initially. Well, it's, it's pretty much synonymous, I guess. I mean, it's just, you know, most of, most of the <clears throat> dust in the house is skin scales. I mean, I, if you look at the dust on your TV screen or, or, you know, the top of the dresser, you take a tape sample and it's, you know, 90% skin, you maybe find some cellulose fibers and maybe a few pollen grains and spores. 
Pet dander if you have a pet. Pet dander, yeah. So but if you look in a closet where, you know, at the baseboard, this is a sort of interesting thing for anybody to do. You look at the baseboard trim where the dust is collected inside a closet. And instead of being sort of homogeneous and gray, it's going to be splotchy. And often there'll be like little dark spots. And that's all, all bug poop. You know, all the sort of microarthropods, the book lice, um, book lice, silverfish, mites. There are all of these organisms, spiders, that forge around. And, and then they just convert all of these simple nutrients to, to allergens. Bob's got a question, but I want to clarify that every day we shed our entire body of skin cells. That's just a, a lot of stuff, 7 million plus an hour. So you're talking about like, oh, we have this in our homes. No, we have a lot of this in our homes. 30 grams a month. Yeah, I get, I get mailed samples from people all the time. They, <clears throat> they're worried about the dust, something terrible in the dust. And it's, it's always it's it's them. <laughs> I had a sample that somebody sent from, from the, the uh, a piece of wood at the bottom of the bed and all of the skin scales were big. It was interesting. Well, the, the scales were huge clumps to be like 20 or 30 chunks of skin. And somebody had some kind of an, you know, skin condition and they're doing a lot of scratching. So when you scratch your skin, you get these big chunks of skin. So I said, you probably have some, you know, some sort of a skin condition. In fact, one of the skin clumps was full of yeast oh, so <laughs> yeast is okay i mean you know it, it's still a family term right yeah well yeah but it causes dandruff you know you can get these skin conditions from yeast so yeah scratchy okay yeah. um yeah. Oh, yeah you know now this is good stuff so we have we have a question from one of our audience members uh tony do you actually want to ask it live oh yeah jeff and Connie, thank you. This is this is great. Very good job. Um, what do you do? Your your house is new. I mean, do you open up your windows in the summertime and actually let air blow through? I mean, I know there's there's toxins outside. I, I understand that, but do you air it out like the old the old wisdom? Yeah, we do. I mean, we you know occasionally air it out, but I mean we have the good filtration. Um, yeah. And I think as long as you don't have any internal generation of stuff, it's not. That much of a problem, I guess. You don't... Excuse me, I'm gonna ask. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The uh, I don't. We you know we have the the in the spring and in the fall. I guess we have open windows, but in the summer and in the winter, it's you know pretty much shut. Air conditioning. Yeah. So you clearly have a passion for what you do, Jeff, and we all appreciate what you have taught us. But let's go back. What actually got you here? Like, what, 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 what was the one incident that you said, you know what, I want to learn more about that. And next thing you know, you have dust colonies growing in your own house to observe their, their, their habits. So what, what actually sparked you many, many well, years ago? Well, I think we had, you know, we had um, a ch kid with asthma and then we had trying to figure out, you know, what that was doing. And then my own allergies. I mean, I had. Well, it's um, kind of a dramatic story, actually. <clears throat> Remember Ben, when Ben, when our son was in sixth grade, uh, he was suddenly, he had a terrible asthma attack in the middle of the night and he was really having trouble breathing. And so uh, the, the pediatrician said, take him immediately to Children's uh, Hospital and he was on oxygen for a week. And then um, the pediatrician, a regular pediatrician wanted to put him on you know, a, lot, a medication regimen. And Jeff said, well, you know, let's see if there are triggers in the home that, that are problematic. And we found, we found, you know, he found, he w did a, essentially an inspection and we found a lot of issues. And, um, and then we ended up moving out of the house actually, because they had hot air heat and Ben got better. I mean, he did need medication, but, but we changed the environment and it made a huge difference. 
Yeah. And that's what got Jeff interested in this. Yeah, I mean, the biggest problem was the you know dust, dust mites. mites. I mean, I, uh, <clears throat> I even in our own bed, I took uh, samples from our and sent them off for dust mite analysis, allergen, and the risk of asthma is, is 10, 10 micrograms uh, per gram of dust, 10 micrograms of, uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, yeah, 10. And it was 40 in, in, on our mattress. And, and Ben's was outrageous too. He, see, he, he, it, this is one of the interesting things. If you sweat a lot, he slept under quilts and he sweat a lot. And so that, that increased the likelihood of having dust mites. You know, it's, and that's, that's actually an interesting motivation for getting into it. So, I mean, that, that, that drove you, drove you down this path and here you are, you know, almost 30 years later, right? Just, just shy of 30 years in the industry. Yeah. Uh, what's changed though? I mean, what, what have you seen? I, obviously the obvious, the obvious elephant in the room is the last year in the pandemic. Cause that was a, you know, big, you know, once in a century type event, but how have you seen the industry change? You know, what, what stayed the same and what needs to change, you know, and just, just your thoughts. Well, I guess the, the big, the shame, I guess, is the big players are uh, like, for example, the, you know, air conditioning industry, they, they still don't want to, you know, admit that the mold's an issue. And, and they, I think they can get away with it because only about 10% of people are really allergic to mold at most, like 15%, something like that. So, and, and um, what does the ashray says, if 80% of the people are happy with the air quality, then that means you have good air quality. So you're, you know, you're leaving the people who are sensitized, uh, you know, out of the picture completely. So there, ha I don't think there's been a lot of give there at all. <clears throat> they don't want to admit that there's a problem. So there is, I think, more awareness about uh, filtration in uh, in systems. I think, and COVID has certainly, you know, increased that. I mean, people are buying up air filters now for their, you know, uh, heating equipment. So that's good. Uh, it's a separate profession. It wasn't in the beginning, you know. I mean, IAC yeah. was not right. that old an organization, right? Yeah. So one of the uh, things you're able to do yourself is you actually can do your own diagnostic. You can do a sample and then actually check it. So, what kind of advice can you give to others out there that aren't skilled at that and uh, want to do a bunch of samples? And that actually adds up to a lot of money for your client. And many of them say, "Oh, I can't do that. I can only afford." five samples or whatever it is. How do you find a compromise for those of us who aren't reading our own slides? What's your advice? Learn how to read your own, <laughs> learn how to read the slides. I mean, it's, no, no, it's, learn how to take the samples. Well, I mean, people go yeah. into public places first and then they go and they well, take true. a sample in yeah. the living room and they find a mold score that was really in the crawl space that got on their clothing. Yeah. I think, you know, to have a, a, a really careful regimen about how they, how they sample and what order they sample. I think that's very important. You can't have dirty clothing. I mean, it's amazing the problems that have been created, you know, by people walking into a space they came out of a crawl space or some other, you know, remediation environment, and then they're, you know, they're taking samples. But it's, I mean, I see that's a nice thing. I do my own, all my own analysis. I don't charge people for the samples, so I take, you know, 15, 20 samples in a typical uh, site visit, and uh, <clears throat> I guess that's that's a real sort of limitation for people but, but i think and also they have to i think it's important that they understand what kind of microfungi grow come from the outside and what what kind what kind can come what kind of spores can come from internal microfungal growth so i mean i've i've seen reports where basidiospores which come from the outside 
are reported as being of worrisome levels inside a house, well, it came from the outside through a window or an open door. So I think just have some knowledge of the science of yeah, fungal growth right, is yeah. very important. That's, that's, that would help a lot. I mean, we actually had a, a call from a guy who was uh, told to tear to uh, demolish his bathroom. He had an entirely tiled bathroom, floor, ceiling, walls, everything, shower. And and the, his, the person took an air, um, an air sample and he had a very high concentration of spores. and they told him he had to demolish his bathroom. And I looked at the report, I laughed and I, I called him up. I said, you know, if you don't have mushrooms coming out of the floor, you don't have to worry about, you don't have to demolish anything. Right. But, but that, that's a function of, you know, people that are out there, you know, doing things and not qualified to, to make those assessments. And, and right. You, you are in that, you know, in that small percentage of people that are consultants in the industry that do in-house work. You know, I know John Solomon's one that comes to mind too, up in, you know, up in uh, uh, Ontario, uh, you know, that, that does in, in-house. And so you take more samples. I'm the same way. I'll take a hundred tape lifts in a place because I can look at them under a microscope. Um, but in absence of that, I think we have to really stress out to the, the, the practitioners, especially the new practitioners, the inexperienced ones, that these are not absolutes, right, Jeff? I mean, these when we take samples, we're taking small sh- snapshots. A tape lift is a half square inch. An air sample is a couple of cubic feet of air at, at a five-minute interval. I mean, th- these are these are small little fragments that we're trying to extrapolate big big information out of. Yeah, I mean, the, well, the most important thing that I really look at is in, in, in indoor, I mean, I think you can say if you've got penicillium or aspergillus spores or, you know, non-outdoor type cladosporium in a sample that there's, you know, that there's an indoor problem. And the biggest difference in that, unfortunately, only a couple of labs report on that is if you have chains of spores. So if I see a chain of 10 penas spores in an air sample, I know that there's growth indoors because they never occur that way outdoors. And the labs, unfortunately, they just say, well, you have 10 penaspores. And so it doesn't really mean anything. So I also think <clears throat> professionals have to be, can't be dismissive. I mean, they can't let a report, they can't use a report as evidence that there's not a problem if the person's right. experiencing oh, yeah, symptoms. Absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, the labs, everybody, I think for people who are taking samples, they should insist that the lab that they use tell them if there are chains of penicillium or aspergillus spores or clusters, or the same for gladius, or canidia for certainly. But I mean, the only the only thing that you, you common you see outdoors is cladosporium, uh, big clusters of them. They usually have cladosporium herbarium, so they're big, and that you can really distinguish them from the ones inside. And the other thing that I use looking at spores is the spores that come out of the heating and cooling system. They often have uh, carbon particles on them because they they are they're impacted by 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 soot and they get the carbon off of the black lining material. So if the spores are dirty. You never see a dirty spore outdoors like that. I have never seen one. So right. it's important. So it, it's that time where I'm going to ask you one last question. I'm going to make those ones very difficult for you, Jeffrey. I know that you guys have a. This is one problem. So. It's your advice that you want to give to others, but I'm going to give you the, the, the first two obvious ones is that listen to your clients. Most people don't do that. Use your brain in terms of taking in all this information. And what's the third thing that they're not doing? So if, if they are doing these things, what's the next step for them to make strong conclusions and really provide great advice for their clients? Listen to your brain, believe your client. Um, use your senses. 
Use your eyes, use your nose, use right. your tongue, you know, be, yeah. be, a, be a receptor, uh, you know, be aware of, of the environment and uh, really use all your senses. I think that's important. Trust your gut. Yeah. Well, this has been a, a phenomenal information. I think anybody who's listening or will listen to this in the future will be like, wow, that was a lot to digest. And I think more people will be wanting to uh, get your book or listen to your book and read your more of your articles that you have. So there were multiple article uh, opportunities that we found here today that we will be leaning back to you guys to help us uh, produce and help, help Bob produce on the show. Thank you for having Thanks, us. Joel. You know, it's, it's, you, you have such a wealth of knowledge and, and, you know, thank you guys for, you know, for your support all these years and contributing to Healthy Indoors Magazine. Um, your column is, you know, one of our most widely read features every month. And uh, it's great that you can, you know, find the time out of your busy schedules to actually uh, get us that. Um, so it, let me do a, another plug for your book. The book again is my house is killing me second edition. Um, it's available. You, it can be purchased on Amazon, but it can also be uh, through your website. Correct. Correct. So that would be at um, may. No, no, it, we, don't, we don't sell the books. Oh, Oh, we take that back. Okay. So the book website can link you. you know, oh, okay. So, uh, but you, your website is mayindoorair.com. Emmy, right? right? Yeah. So that's, they can, they can uh, get to that and get some information on it. Um, Joe, uh, you come here on behalf of an entity too, that does some interesting stuff. Yeah. So I actually am a healthy building consultant and you mentioned building science earlier. I think you need to be a healthy building scientist, which means you're uh, 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 hypersensitive to the chemicals that are in the home and the well, products. An unhealthy one would be a bad building scientist. Uh, yeah. So, but there are, they are out there, but they just don't claim them to be that way. So yeah, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not just a healthy building scientist. I'm a good healthy building scientist. Anyway, thanks for the distraction, Bob. So, um, so, but you're also into ventilation. If you understand ventilation and the chemicals that are in your house or the allergens in your house, then you are a healthy building scientist. So, and that all comes from Hayward score, HaywardScore.com. We have a survey that you can answer probably in around 10 minutes. It, uh, advises you about conditions in your house and makes you very aware of your house. And we also believe that the occupant is the number one uh, receptor in the house. So right. you can bring whatever tools you want, but that person is so much more sensitive than any tool you can buy for even a hundred thousand dollars. So that's our focus and you can find more out on our website. Thank you. Excellent. And I'll do the shameless plug for uh, Healthy Indoors. Um, so we are uh, a monthly uh, free digital publication. Our USA edition comes out every month. Uh, March edition will be out shortly. Um, we are also debuting uh, in uh, very short order, like in about a week. We'll have our uh, first edition of our global version of the magazine. And this will be a quarterly digital publication as well. It'll be free like our uh, monthly USA edition, but it'll be more world centric. So the topics will be from uh, authors around the planet. So uh, more of a more of a worldwide view on IEQ issues and uh, sustainability issues. So look for that. And furthermore, we also have the uh, the Healthy Indoors Global Community, which is uh, being baited and being tweaked, and that'll be released at the end of the month. And that's uh, an online uh, portal that you in the industry will be able to uh, become part of and actually use to network with other professionals in, in the country, all around the globe, uh, share events, share content. It's, it's really going to be a very, very exciting portal, so we're excited for that. We'll be streaming the show live there as well. Um, and uh, 
you know, definitely more news on that coming up in the next week. Now, as Susan will remind me uh, before she even has to put it in the chat, next week's show is also a great show. We uh, will be taking a look back at the year of COVID. All right. So it's about a year since we launched this live weekly show uh, based on the pandemic. And uh, with us next week, we have uh, Dr. David Kraus, Dr. Rich Richard Corsi, and Scott Armour, all of whom uh, will actually... Uh, uh, Dr. Corsi hasn't been on our show before, but um, the, the other two gentlemen have been on a, a lot of our episodes talking about COVID. So we're going to take a look back at the year that we've all experienced, uh, what we've learned from it, and take a look forward. So this is a show you definitely don't want to miss next week. Um, so definitely join us here. We'll always uh, be back at the same bat time, same bat channel. You can now watch us live. You can be part of our studio audience like many here, or you're also able to watch the show after the fact. We put the recordings up about a day later. And there's an audio podcast associated with the show. So that's, uh, I think that's uh, enough promo on that. Um, Jeff and Connie, thanks so very much for being here. It's just, it's, it's just a great time to always speak with you guys. I just I'll always learn and always enjoy uh, what little time we get to share together at events. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. We feel the same way. And uh, Joe, uh, you know, as always, uh, it's great to have you here. And, you know, I do have to say my sarcasms, uh, you know, and poke in some things here and there because it's just how I roll. But um, Joe Medosh is no stranger to being on top of his game either. So um, with that, I would like to thank you all for uh, watching the show this week. Um, and uh, we'll be leaving. Uh, we'll see you next Thursday here live, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern time for the Healthy Indoors live show. Until then, I'm your host, Bob Krell. Stay healthy. Stay well. Thank you.